Like 
here on the same page, no? And I was just saying that, like, you know, Alain often, for objective reasons, uh, had to cancel the problem. Why did he do cancel yesterday's talks? You wouldn't be doing this. So, quite seriously, I, with great pleasure this morning, I read his talk and I hope there will be some ethics. There will be maybe some minor differences, but to use our Maoist references, this will be definitely what Maoists and called uh, contradictions within the people, not contradictions between people and enemies of the people. So, okay, I try to begin with an easier, more popular way, and then don't be afraid, we will approach much more serious, even metaphysical topic. I would like to begin with some of the confusions about sex, love, passion in today's, at least in the West, Western popular culture. What fascinates me is the inherent tension, contradictions of this culture. They pretend to be uh, permissive, you know, you can do what you want and so on, but they are so much over-regulated that I can well understand some of my friends who turned to Islam not because they, they couldn't support free Western freedom and needed the firm authority, but they want Western, they found Western heaven's freedom to regulate and to oppress it. So, let me begin. In the spring of this year, a couple of months ago, I don't know if it was reported here, but in, in England, the media extensively reported on a middle-aged photographer, a woman called Grace Gelder, who, after practicing Indian meditation, decided to marry herself. Literally. She organized the full ceremony of self-marriage in front of witnesses, friends. Uh, she proclaimed her vows to herself, she put on a wedding ring to herself, and she kissed uh, herself in a mirror. Now, far from being an idiosyncratic, stupid eccentricity, the idea of self-dating and self-marrying more and more circulate in Western popular media. You have, I love them, I bought them, you have short brochures, books, which detail how to proceed in self-dating, which should precede self-marrying. If you are your own prospective self-lover, you should first leave all around your apartment loving messages like, Hi, Slavoj, I love you, I love myself. And then you discover that when you go to the toilet, so glad the message for yourself, from yourself. When you decide to date yourself, you should put your apartment in order, prepare a nice table with candles, you put on your best dress, you inform your friends that you cannot visit them this evening because you have a more important date with yourself. As they say, the goal of self-dating is to gain a deep knowledge of yourself, of who you really are and who you want to be. So that, by way of taking a vow, a commitment to your deeper self, 
you can achieve self-acceptance and self-carbonization. But does this work? Before we explore Tungu Lhasa and this idea, I think you should notice that it does contain a moment of truth. The idea of self-dating and self-marriage presupposes that me, an individual, I am not directly one with myself. I can marry myself only if I am not directly myself. So that my self-identity has to be registered, performed in a symbolic ceremony, made official. Here, however, problems arise. How does this symbolic registration relate to my self-experience? What if the result of probing into myself is that I discover that I don't like what I find there. That's my first reaction. I date myself, I talk with myself, and I do deep into myself. Well, at least for myself, I'm sure what I will discover. I don't want to get anything to do with this stupid person. In other words, if you look deeply into yourself, what do you usually discover? All the filth of envy, sadistic fantasies, uh, disgusting sexual obsessions, and so on. So, the much celebrated inner wealth of my personality is, I claim, inherently excremental. What I really am is, I'm full of shit. In short, what if I discover that I am my own neighbor? in the strict biblical sense, where, you know, in the Bible, neighbor is not just the next guy. Neighbor is precisely the strange, horrible dimension of the one who is close to you. They say that in order to love others, you have to love yourself. But I think it's precisely the opposite that holds. I love others to escape myself, and I can only love myself insofar as I'm able to love others. Self-marrying presupposes that I have found peace with myself. But what if I precisely cannot reconcile myself with myself? What if I, and what if I discover it's only after I got married to myself? So, when I had a debate recently in New York with one of the propagators of self-marriage, I told him what interests me much more is self-divorce. Can I say, no, I no longer love myself, I want to divorce myself. And I claim that alleged, I don't like the term, it's wrong, abuse, but let's call it naivety, anthropology, is this type of anthropology of not self-hatred, but self-distance, alleged to wrote wonderfully in one of his texts that has politically constituted subject, I have to be an amplitoyable, merciless censor of myself. And that's my first problem. And here resides what is wrong with the well-known motto, be true to yourself, be yourself. Well, my first question is which self? Insofar as the self whom I marry in self-marrying, is my ideal ego, the ideal image of myself, the best in me. Uh, uh, what about other 
So my first problem is that to take minimally seriously this idea of self-marriage, it should have been a complex contract explaining I, as myself, I married myself. But I cannot be fully responsible for the superego and it. Will they agree with me and so on and so on. So again, I think that this self-marrying is ideology at its worst today. And exactly the same question, which self comes the latest politically correct madness, the obsession whose commercial expression is the so-called, I'm not kidding, it exists in the United States and in England, and it's not a joke, I want one, just to test it. The so-called consent conscious kit is a small debt for only £1.99. It's a small bed where you get a, a condom, a ment, mental chocolate, condom properly mental chocolate so that you have good breath, and then a pen and a simple contract. You put your name, your lover puts another name, and you both sign that you are doing it voluntarily. And now you will say, this is a joke. No, I couldn't, I couldn't take it seriously till a friend of mine, Ed Kadawa from New York University, informed me, he sent me the file that, do you know that in most of the big American universities, I know it is the case in Columbia and in UCLA, in Los Angeles, and in most of the federal administrative agencies, they impose this rule. The two can make love if they are not student, professor, adults, but con they, their consent before they do it has to be somehow registered. The, the, the, uh, the name they put it is, uh, is of this campaign is uh, not to say no is not enough. They claim, for example, that if a man seduces a woman and she doesn't protest, it still can be present. So they want some kind of symbolic registration. Like I flirt with a woman or man or whatever, we decide to do it, and then there has to be a registration. They even propose a charity where we both hold the paper, yes, we want to do it. Yeah, yes, there has to be some explicit registration. And the man is legalized. Madness is legalized. You have to register what they call affirmative, conscious and voluntary agreement to engage in sexual activity. But again, I have a problem here as a Freudian. Uh, let's say that I have an ego which consciously wants. Then let's say I have these obscure half-conscious desires. And then let's say that I have an ethical agency which tells me what I should do and sometimes I do it, sometimes I don't do it. What if there is a, a conflict between the three? Like, 
but the Shoe Believer tells me do it. And I'm not here giving you a false example. Today I claim it's often like this. It's not you want to have sex, but your superego prohibits It's almost a rule is the opposite situation. You are indifferent, but superego tells you you have to enjoy it. It's your duty to enjoy it. Next problem. You say yes to what? And there are, I spoke with some people who advocate this. There are problems. For example, you both say yes. But, sorry, a good example. What, what if the woman simply meant yes to a standard vaginal penetration, but you think she also meant yes to anal penetration? So, uh, as a good bureaucrat, you can imagine how I already see the possibility of turning this simple act into a complex bureaucratic procedure. You get a long contrast, you know, when you say yes, but yes to anal intercourse, breast should be squeezed too much, the woman should be stretched me too much, you know, and then for me, if you ask me, then you negotiate for two, three hours, and this gives you almost more pre-clinical sense. Uh, the other problem, now act a little bit more serious, uh, is that uh, what these people also insist on is that uh, not only you say yes, you say yes, but that both partners should have the right to step out if they feel uncomfortable in the middle of the act. It's incredible how they don't Notice uh, how ambiguous this condition is. I can well imagine, for example, from my medical aspect, a gesture which obeys all these rules, but it will be experienced by a woman as an incredibly humiliating brutality. Let's say I seduce a woman, we want to do it, she undresses herself, then to be brutal. Or she can do the same to me, but sorry, I look from my perspective. I don't like what I see, her body, and then I tell her, sorry, I breached the contract, I turned the right, I stepped out. Can you imagine anything more humiliating for the woman? So what's the problem here? The problem, I think, is a very subtle one. I am totally against any sexual violence in the sense of humiliating, forcing any partner, and so on, and so on. But uh, what I am saying is that, uh, you see, see uh, uh, the problem is that, that is, that you, when you are in the process of passionate seduction, this act presupposes you to do something which precisely you cannot do. Or, if you do it, it must be in some way part of the process of seduction. You cannot be in the middle of passionate interplay and then you step back and become your own bureaucrat. No. If you do this, it can ruin everything, but if you are lucky, it can even bring uh, an additional sexual effect. You erode, but what I'm just saying is it cannot be neutral. You know, it presupposes this weird split of the subject, as if you are doing whatever you are doing in passion, 
At the same time, you can stand back and objectively look at yourself. Uh, so, what I'm claiming is that there is something in the very structure of erotic interplay which resists direct formal declaration of consent or intent. For example, again, I read it here if some women would protest to accept it, but from what I've heard, many women don't say yes, not because they don't want to do it. I'm not talking about the opposite woman can say yes, but it's really, she was forced to say yes. The, what interests me is that, you know, let's say you are an intense interplay, but both of you are a little bit shy or whatever. Isn't it that it would appear totally ridiculous if all of a sudden, in the middle of embracing, all of a sudden she or he stands up, okay, now I say yes. You know, you are like a, it can ruin it. You cannot, as Jacques Lacombe can put it, in other the metal of gas, there is no meta language. Whatever you say during sexual interplay, it's a part of sexual interplay. Next thing, uh, uh, you know, the, the mystery of seduction is precisely uh, how there is something in the structure of erotic interplay which resists this direct declaration of the detour, not saying it directly, itself plays an erotic role. For example, an example that I use in two of my books, if you know that I'm sorry if I repeat it, but I love it. There was some 20, 15 years ago an English working class drama comedy, Brass Off with Ivan McGregor. That's when he was still a working class hero before he became Obi Ben Kenobi and all those videos. He accompanied a young British woman to her flat after their day, and there she tells him, Would you like to come in for a coffee? He answers, Yes, but there is a problem. I don't drink coffee. She answers with a smile, No problem, I don't care. What I feel is that it's the most open erotic invitation you can imagine, but be careful at what happens. Nothing, just an offer, you know, you make an offer and then you say, oh, but it doesn't matter that offer. I mean, eroticization is, resides in this very, uh, in this very, in this very empty rejection of explicit demands. I come for a coffee, I don't like coffee, doesn't matter, I don't care. I think that the true genius of sexuality would be to apply this even to sex itself. Like, uh, wouldn't it be true love if a woman tells you, come up, let's fuck, and you say, no, sorry, I'm not in the mood, and she says, no problem, I'm also not in the mood. That would have been true love, I claim. Well, you know, uh, it's, as Lacan knew it well, the mystery of human sexuality is that sex itself has to be sexualized. Sex without these rhetorical detours and so on is simple animal cutting. There is none of what we call sexual tension. And I don't know how is it with Islam. I'm well aware of erotics of Islam. I mean, that there is, but what I know about Christianity is 
ideologies but ideology can't obviously openly says in in paradise before the fall. Adam and Eve, of course they were making love all the time. But he says it wasn't sexualized. It was totally they were doing it like his raising penis was in the same way it is Augustine's example like when a farmer on the field raises his tool or or or is plowing the field and so on, you just do it intentionally. And it's, it's again, that's crucial. Sex itself through all this, uh, uh, the tools has to be sexualized, has to be uh, sexualized. Uh, uh, uh, so uh, I just wanted to make clear to you this dimension of rhetoric of sexualization. Imagine an obscene variation on this scene from following those stupid consent rules. Okay, woman says, the girl says to the boy, let's go up and uh, to get some coffee. What if the guy answers something like, wait a minute, let us make it clear. You invited me for a cup of coffee in your flat without having any coffee. This means you want sex. Yes, okay, admit it, it would uh, ruin everything. Or, uh, uh, uh, but what would be for me the truly sexually attractive thing? Would be the opposite thing. Uh, uh, like the true vulgarity would have been direct communication. Like the girl says, now we are here, please, I would like you to come to my flat and fuck me. And the boy says, oh, I would also love to fuck you, so let's just go up and do it. This is fun. Then, uh, then, what I would like is this. You say it explicitly, but ruin the effect by the way you say like something like, the girl says to the boy, I would like you to come to my flat and fuck me. But I'm embarrassed to ask for it directly, so I will be polite and ask you if you want to come up with me for a coffee. It's ridiculous, but then the boy answers, I don't drink coffee, but I would like to do it the first thing, so let's go up and do it. Uh, so, uh, my favorite version would have been, and once, unfortunately, years ago it happens to me, that the woman, in an intelligent, funny way, gives you a literal answer. You know, like, once I asked a lady, would you like to come up to my flat for a drink? Her answer was, no, sorry, I have menstruation, not today. You know, like, she answered directly to that. And that would be, okay, the true charm of the scene for me. So, uh, again, the question is, why does the direct invitation to sex not work? Again, the problem is that in the same way that coffee sometimes is not fully coffee, in this situation that you say, if you come for a coffee, you mean another thing. The problem is that sex is also never fully sex. What do I mean by this? I will tell you another old story which I used in one of my early books, I hope you don't know it. People usually think that psychoanalysis is about vulgar reduction to sex. Whatever we 
you we really mean that? You know, uh, uh, we always think about sex. No, this is vulgar psychoanalysis. The true Freudian problem is not whatever you think of it's really ultimately about sex. No, it's but what do you think when you are doing sex? That is to say, Lacan's thesis is that since there is no sexual relationship as he puts it, you never are alone in sex. It's never me and my partner. You have to have this sustained by a fantasy, by a dream of okay? uh, uh, now comes the story which I love. Twenty years ago, when I was young, a German weekly, I think it was Stern, but I'm not sure, published for its summer issue a wonderful series of calligraphies. They have like seven, eight men, each of them is asked what would you like to do this summer. And each of them gives an official answer. One says, I would like to be in nature and walk by a forest. Another guy answers, I would like to walk around in a museum. The third one, I would like to take a long flight. But then you have, as in uh, comics, you know where you put the dialogue, this cloud, and it shows what they really think. And of course, in the cloud, for everyone, is a naked woman, no? like this. I think it's totally wrong. The true answer would be, the true caricature would have been the opposite one. You ask all these men, if they are not gay, what would you like to do? And they are vulgar, drunk, let's say, they answer, oh, a lot of sex. But then, in the cloud, it should be uh, uh, ancient monuments, it means I would like to make love in a museum or forest, which means my idea of love is in nature or airplane. Because there are people, even some of my friends, whose point of honor is to do, they are called 10,000 clubs, you know, up there. But you see the point of Lacan. Sex is more complex. The true question is by which fantasy it is uh, sustained. Uh, so, uh, the yes means yes sexual rule, I think, is just an exemplary case of subjectivity which predominates today. The big topic is the subjects are we humans are precarious, vulnerable, something that has to be protected by a complex set of rules. They should be warned in advance about all possible intrusions that may disturb them. Let me give you a nice example where I am against sleep. Do you know that? Do you know the fever eating extraterrestrials? You know that when this fever was released in Sweden 30 years ago or when, uh, it was prohibited to not only to young people. For some period, it was prohibited in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark, totally prohibited. You know with what justification? Uh, this is a detail that I rather like in this video. They claim, the senators said, the non-sympathetic portrayal of adults in this video. You know, only the children can establish solidarity with children, uh, adults are evil, was considered dangerous for the relation between children and their parents. I mean, it's, uh, 
Tofu madness. But here we are today. Not only real life experiences, even fiction can be censored. What is reported here in the media? What happened a couple of months ago at Columbia University of New York? A student girl in a class where they studied literary classic was given as literature, not only her, the entire class, uh, uh, Ovid Metamorphosis. And she, when the song she read Metamorphosis, there is a scene of violent sex there, practically there. And she complained that since she was once sexually molested, this scene perturbed her too much. And she complained against the professor that this was brutal from his side. So then, you know what came out of this? Something. It's called Columbia University's Multicultural Affairs Advisory Board. Something. Impose a rule that in all literature and art classes, all texts that are given have to be, uh, have to be accompanied by so-called trigger warning. Like, you are given literature, but at the beginning of the book or text, it should say a uh, uh, warning if you are sensitive to things of sexual violence, do not read it, and so on, and so on. Uh, and second thing, they wanted at Columbia University now to have special obligatory classes for professors for so-called sensitivity training. How do you approach this. Now, why am I uh, opposed to this? Let me be clear. I have deep respect when people feel wounded and so on and so on. But this is the worst version how to fight it. I think university shouldn't be the cocoon space where you are protected from brutal experiences. My God, they should even show you things of rape. Precisely so that you feel the horror of it. They should not isolate you from it. They should teach you how to confront it. My God, you know. This is, I think, the worst of how things are reported. Even, for example, all the horrors of others. Even in Europe, refugees now and so on. You know, you see it in the media, but in a very... Uh, in a very, uh, uh, in a very uh, uh, protected way. I think that uh, precisely, and here I agree with what I will later refer to it, Alain elaborated in his wonderful uh, uh, book, Eloge de l'Amour, In Praise of Love, that uh, love is, in this sense, trigger warning. Love is triggering. Love is a very dramatic encounter. Love is dangerous. Love can ruin your life. But this, okay, I'm not saying, I'm not a masochist, and I'm saying that's why you should do it. But, uh, but uh, uh, you should take the risk, absolutely. If love is without danger, then it's not love. It's not a true encounter with another person. What do we mean by this? Uh, two theoretical points. First, as I already said, the, the Christian and Jewish, I don't know how this is in Islam, I admit it, uh, 
notion of neighbor. It's not the good guy. It's not the sorblon. It's not the fellow. Those who are like us. Already in the Bible, if you read it with the refinement, neighbor is the other in the palace to this abyss. You cannot see deep into him or her. The example, maybe already mentioned here that I like, did, did you see uh, Stephen King, uh, Kubrick made the movie The Shining? Uh, Jack Nicholson is the neighbor. That's why Stephen King was right to play Jack, uh, Jack Nicholson was wrong for that role. Why? Because, you know, in the novel, the whole point is this one. The father of the family is a good, normal father. Slowly, he turns into a monster. From a fellow man, he turns into a neighbor. But, as Stephen King was right to say, the moment Jack Nicholson enters the frame, you see he is a monster. No, it, it, it does. But, so what I want to say is that, uh, in this sense, I'm saying the monster is not only the other. That's how I read Alain. That uh, the danger of love is not only how can I be sure that I love you? Is there something monstrous in you or whatever? Maybe an even more monstrous experience is to be loved. It's a terrible pressure. You know how horrible it is if you feel that you are the object of another's passionate love. Because basically, by definition, you don't know why the others love you. It's as if you have some treasure in you and you don't know what this treasure is because that's the ABC of love. Love, by definition, cannot be accounted for in reasons. Like, if you say, I love that woman because of her hair, beautiful smile, legs, and so on. It's not love. It's not that it doesn't matter how the woman is. But there is in passionate love a refined reversal, which is the similar one as you find by, with some intelligent uh, Christian theologists like Kierkegaard, where he says it's an obscenity to say I'm a Christian because I read the arguments in the Bible and the arguments convinced me. Uh, Kierkegaard uses the same example for paternal authority. He says it's an obscenity to say my father is a bright, a bright guy, he gave me good reasons so I obeyed him. No. Kierkegaard says as a theologist. No, it's the other way around. To understand reasons to believe, you have to believe. Now people say this is religious obscurantism. No, this is Marx. Marx says exactly the same thing about Marxist theory. Marxism is not an objective theory. Stalin wrote like this. Like a scientist studies history, he discovers the laws of history. Oh my god, proletarian class will win, so let's join in the victorious. <laughs> no. To understand and be a Marxist, it's not abstract knowledge. You have to be engaged in it. And that's another topic that you find in Alain, which is the best answer to the stupid reproach against him that he is an abstract universalist. No, his greatness is, I wonder if you would agree here, for me, Hegelian greatness, that partisanship, engaged partisanship and universality, 
not only do not exclude each other, but imply each other. Through universality, we can gain access to it only through a partisan position, which means back to love. Yes, I love that woman because of her smile, whatever you want. But in order to perceive reasons why I love her, I have to be in love. You cannot step out of this uh, circle. Which is why, again, it's pretty horrible to be, uh, uh, to be not only in love, but to be loved. Uh, second brief point I want to make, and then we go to further paradoxes. Uh, Christianity here commits a terrifying mistake when it opposes carnal sexual love to, I don't know, spiritual, metaphysical sphere. That's why I like the title here, Metaphysics of Love. Not love, even passionate sex. Look, let's define metaphysics in what sense. I will not know. His point, if I got it correctly, is that Plato is not just a metaphysician with no event, in the sense of eternal ideas, they are just there. No, you should focus in Plato on the encounter of an idea. And in some wonderful, wonderful uh, parts of his dialogues, Plato even clearly describes Socrates confronting the better and your muscles remain stronger, then they will even advise you to do a lot of deep frank teaching, because they say in this way your muscles here will remain stronger, so in your old age you will not be, saliva will not be, I mean, this is the most horrible text that I so what I want to say is that Alain developed this nicely how uh, the verb, and I don't think unfortunately you have in Turkish, we don't have it in Slovene, they have it in French and in English, you know, the term is to fall in love, to to fall. And this dimension, is the book translated in your language, Alain, your Eloge de l'amour? Is it translated? So, read it, read it, like, read it. It's like, it should be like in Korea, Kim Jong-il, Kim Il-sung speeches, this <laughs> No, seriously, this idea, the strategies that we get today, and that's my point, it's not that we should deplore in a spiritualist way, oh my God, we live in a consumerist society of pleasures. No, we don't. We live in an extremely, in a society where pleasures are extremely controlled, you know. Drink what, beer, but without alcohol, blah, blah, and without, and uh, uh, so, uh, my point is that, as Allegro says, we are now returning to arranged marriages more and more. Okay, we don't have parents who decide it, but we have all these dating agencies and others, and the function of them is precisely to erase the dimension of thought. And Alain found an example in France, and I found two of them in America, United States, uh, publicity for dating agencies, where they say, you are a busy woman, because the rest are not quite women, so you don't have time to flirt, to look for partners. We will enable you to find yourself in love without the fault. They, 
the, uh, uh, what I'm saying is that without this, the, for me, I'm sorry, but I'm here absolutely traditional. For me, falling in love is destiny, but it's a contingently, retroactively created destiny. Falling in love means this. I go to the toilet, I fell down there, I'm taken to a hospital, and there is a nurse there. A stupid example. Or whatever. And, oh my God, we fell in love, and then immediately we construct a narrative where I can say, my, all of my life I was waiting <laughs> for this moment. And uh, so what I'm saying is that, uh, is that, uh, Precisely, and I already, when I gave another public speech here, uh, half a year, no, a couple of months ago, I developed another example of how we don't live in, in, in truly consumerist, capitalist societies. Like, even from literature, bestseller and Hollywood commercial, sex is disappearing. The example I gave, more or less, okay, you will tell me now 50 shades of noir, which is the most impressive thing. But look at, for example, Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code, and so on. No sex at the end. And so on, and so on. Or even James Bond, Quantum of Solace. The first James Bond film was, how do we relate today in our everyday ideology to these things? We say, sex is good, healthy, but remain true to yourself. Don't go crazy. Remain in control, and this can even be even a kind of a stupid pseudo-Buddhist twist. Don't become too attached to earthly objects, you know. And uh, this, you know, we should be aware. I don't know how it is here with you, but for example, in the United States, this is what I found a little bit problematic with these feminist attacks on. Uh, on, on, on patriarchy. Of course, we should fight it where it is, but I claim the predominant mass ideology today in the West is no longer traditional patriarchy. It's what I call enlightened Buddhism. Sorry, Catholicism. It's something like there are no a priori rules for humans. Be truly yourself. Experiment with yourself. Discover different dimensions of yourself. Just don't get fixed fixated onto one uh, position. I will immediately, approaching the end, uh, develop what is wrong with this. Uh, I, uh, I just want to make another, here uh, before that important point, I think that love is also not a matter of this inner, deep inner authentic feeling of experience. Love is uh, an act an act which can even be covered up by what you sincerely feel, which is to provoke you a little bit. Uh, the most uh, stupid proverb that I know is an enemy is someone whose story you have not heard. The idea being when I confront an enemy, I do it from my limited imagination, but I ignore how she or they also have a story to tell. They have their own side of the story. Well, up to a point, yes, it's obviously true in cases of racism and so on. But there are limits to this. Like, I don't know who is for you, 
an image of evil for us in Europe, it's Hitler, of course. Would you also say Hitler was our enemy because we haven't really listened to his story? I claim we should listen to his story. And it can even be a very nice story. But the point is that this inner authenticity is not the authentic moment. It's a fake emotions. Uh, remember, now it's really 14 years from what, uh, September 11th uh, attacks. It's interesting how when the planes were falling down, some of the best just got it that they will die and they uh, wrote SMSs weekly and some idiots like Martin Amis, the writer, were so fascinated by the fact that most of these last minute, I know that I'm dying, messages were about love. Like a husband tells to her wife, remember, I will die now, but remember, I love you, and so I love you, and so on. I think, no, even if you are approaching death, it's not only not necessary that your insight will be more authentic, it's even a greater temptation to love. It's so interesting what a friend of mine, a certain told me, he looked closer into some of these cases of dying messages I love. And he discovered that some of them, the discovery was so shocking that he was afraid to publish. For example, there were two or three men who were on those planes on a on way to meet their listeners. And when they were dying, they sent this SMS to, the, you know, they kept more of their self-image. At that moment, they lied. They manipulated. So, uh, trying to imagine a, a really authentic message. I would say, uh, let's imagine a wife who phones her husband in the last seconds of her life. She doesn't tell him, remember, always I love you, but she tells him, before I die, I just wanted to let you know that our marriage was a fake, I cannot stand the sight of you, and I was going to meet my love. That would have been an authentic you know. So, again, what I'm saying here is that terrible crimes can be covered up by beautiful narratives. Inner experience is not necessarily an authentic act. And it's very interesting to do this. I have a book with a terrible title, The Nazi Conscience, like this moral conscience. Well, it's a terrifying book because it tells all the beautiful stories the Nazis were telling themselves so that to enable them with good conscience to do all their crimes and so on and so on. Which is why, incidentally, I also deeply suspicious of all these horrible, or all these uh, religions of inner, inner experience, like, which focus on some authentic inner experience. Okay, uh, here uh, comes, we can debate a bit later, my question to you, Alain. Love and universality. I would like to reach the idea, I wonder what you will maybe after seven o'clock answer, that uh, for me, the model of the most beautiful declaration of love for me is in Richard Wagner, who we both admire, 
Valkyrie Second est Zygmunt de Kiro, Tuchin Brinfield de Valkyria, approached and said, you are now going to a duel, you will die. And I can arrange it so that you will join Valhalla, the second place of heroes in military government. And Sigmund says, no, sorry, if I cannot take there my great love, Siglinde, you know, this idea of, they bring him there, ask him something like, but are you crazy? I offer you eternity, and there is the poor ragged girl half dying, and that poor object there is to you more than eternity. I think what is great in love is this move from the universal to absolute individuality. I am not saying there is no dimension of universality. I am saying the relationship is much more complex. There is a uh, uh, uh, I, will, I would like to use another example which I'm sure you know, don't know, uh, an, old, uh, an old melodrama with Elizabeth Taylor, Rhapsody, from 54, where uh, the lesson is wonderful. It's the story of a beautiful girl who first gets engaged with a violinist, and the violinist uh, drops her. I mean, wants to have her, but the career matters more to him. Then, uh, a pianist falls in love with her. They marry, she doesn't love him. And on the very night of his concert, just before, she tells him, tomorrow I will leave you. And he says, but couldn't you wait till tomorrow? Why are you saying this to me now before the concert? Do you want to ruin no, you have to go through this. And of course, it's a melodrama, beautiful ending. Uh, the only thing I, why this dinner should be burned is the music. She plays Rachmaninoff's second concerto in Christ while he is playing. But the point is that in the end, the concert is a triumph, but he is totally devastated and she comes to What's the lesson of this? It's a very refined paradox. Let's say you have a choice if you are a man or if you are a woman. You are passionately in love, but you also have a universal cause, political, dedication, art, whatever. Now, I'm sorry, but it can also be turned the other way around. As a man, I'm telling you this from my masculine perspective. If you say to a woman, Listen, I love you so much that I cannot survive without you, so I will drop my political cause or career. I simply want to live with you. It will be a failure. It's not a true reason. It's not a true proof of your love. It will end bad. The true thing you should do in such a situation is to choose your cause, even if it ruins, you know, to to risk losing, only in this way you will gain the woman's respect. What the woman wants to hear from you is not, I cannot survive without you, so I humiliate myself. No, it's to let her, I can survive with you, the communist or whatever, totally neutral example, cause is more, but it will ruin me. 
you know, like, it's, uh, love is absolute, but it's this refined absolute where you shouldn't directly elevate it into a cause. If you put it in these terms, what is more to me, revolution or whatever, or love, it's a false choice. In this immediate choice, if it's true love, you have to uh, choose public cause. And your love is no less absolute for me. This is why, and uh, you also, in your series, that's why you also were uh, your series that he has a beard now. He is preparing for Erdogan terror. So this is not Sorry, did you also publish Marguerite Girard in your Yes, I do, here. Sorry? No, no, no, that's what I read. Uh, I like couples in some of Marguerite Girard's novels. How does love emerge there? Not this stupid person, they look each other into the eye. No, they usually search for another object, maybe even the lost husband of her, and they together work for a cause. And then by doing this, maybe they tell the hand or whatever, but it's not a direct, as it were, it's not a direct uh, goal. That's why, that's why I think uh, if you ask me the greatest love story, one of the greatest for me, is uh, Lenin and Inessa Armand. It was done so beautifully, now some archives are open in Moscow, and it's clear. They did have an affair. It was even done in a beautiful, civilized way. Nadezhda Krupskaya knew it, but there was no conflict. Nadezhda Krupskaya and Inessa Armand even become French, and it's very tragic. This was one of the photos which were censored in Stalinism. You see Lenin attending the funeral of Inessa Armand. And he was totally broken, they had to. I mean, basically, this was his absolute love. But it was done so nicely. There was no public passion in it. You know, that's how you do it. Lenin was totally dedicated to his work and so on and so on. The love lost nothing. This love of his and Inessa was much more absolute than some decadent self-immersion, let's fuck day and night and not exit the bedroom and so on and so on. I think that that's for me the, in, in this sense, I wonder if you, Alain, would agree that uh, I share totally your suspicion about love as a political category. You know, this Freud-Marxist stupidity, communism will be a near aware be vulgar, uh, working will be like fucking and fucking like working, but they don't say this. Uh, you know, kind of a, a total interpenetration of sexual pleasure and everyday life. No, I think that intense love has to appear as this singularity, which in no way, it's in no way blocks your public engagement. Like, I'm even ready to go so far, and I read one Stalinist story where there, are, there is a couple, and she, no, he, he is a traitor, no, the Stalinist invented years, and she kills him, and she tells him, while shooting him, she is a fanatic communist, listen, I'm doing this out of love, and he accepts. 
you know that uh, it, they simply move, I claim, at ontologically different, uh, at ontologically different, uh, at ontologically different uh, levels. So what I want to resist, and that's why I appreciate your work, Alain, because you consciously avoid this temptation, not just sexual, personal love, what about political love, love of humanity or all that bullshit? No, I'm totally, I find so suspicious and hypocritical this humanist universalism. For example, I will be very clear here. Uh, uh, because I claim that this universal love, then you all, always need a figure like a Jew or a Palestinian, you need a bad guy, hatred should be then reserved for an exception. For me, the moment of truth of this fake universal political love is, this is one of the glorious moments of the, of the end of communism, when at the end, when there was a big meeting of Central Committee in East Germany, and some people accused Eric Milke, the head of Stasi, that he was doing illegal activities, uh, and you know what he did? It's a historical scene. He went like a retriever with Allah, you know, like, I love you all. No, we should do it like this. Uh, I claim that uh, love is singular in the strictest Alain Badiou sense. Love is violent. That's where I like, I'm a total atheist, Christian love. Christian love is not up there. Christian love is not the Buddhist love where you love all the world, so you withdraw, okay, simplified version. I like this uh, particular fanaticism of love. Love means I love you singular. And all the world can go to hell. Okay, it cannot, but that's why you need the communist cause, no? So what I want to say to conclude now, really, to... Now that we are facing this refugee crisis, and with all problems that I have, don't misunderstand me about your government. I think that, let me make a provocation, I hope you will not be, or be arrested, that love your neighbor as yourself has a clear meaning today in Turkey. It means love your Kurdish neighbor as yourself. But what I'm saying is that nonetheless, it's beautiful how for Europe it's a big problem to get 10,000 refugees, but you have 1 million, 2 million of them, no? And there is, so, and this is so horrible, there are three types of states, vaguely, in a totally external way. Very weak, middle, and more poor. Did you notice how their readiness to accept refugees is exactly turned around? It's relatively poor countries, okay, for getting better, like Turkey, Egypt, and so on, who are ready to accept them. There are Europe, there is Europe, rich, so-so, which has problems, and the really rich, Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, uh, Kuwait, Emirates, they accept none. Although they are directly responsible. My God, uh, Saudi Arabia, by supporting anti-Assad forces, is directly responsible for refugees there. But okay, what I want to say is this here. Uh, I hate in Europe this sentimental uh, 
habitation of refugee sites. Do we still have a heart? We should accept them by love and so on. No! I said once and I caused a scandal. Somewhere was I, I forgot where, I think somewhere in Scandinavia, country, where I said, when they asked me this stupid false question, would you be writing to take the refugee to your house? I said, no, I hate them. But I'm ready to radically change my life to help them. Not because I love them, I feel sympathy for them, but because it's simply duty, my God. Duty is not sentimental goodness and so on. It's a different dimension. We should receive refugees not because we have human sympathy for them and so on and so on, but precisely out of coldness of doing your duty. Here I would like to conclude with someone who is definitely not one of us, was, but sometimes he said a wonderful thing. Uh, Winston Churchill. He once said something like, Sometimes doing the good is not enough, even if it is the best you can do. Sometimes you must do what is required. And next year, we shouldn't ask ourselves how good we are, blah, blah, blah. No, it's the level shouldn't be put at this problem. There are poor people, they're coming, are we kind enough? It shouldn't be personalized in this way. That's why I put it in these brutal terms. I didn't want to be a fake. Would you like to have some stupid refugees mingling around in your apartment? No, I didn't want, didn't, don't like my friends to be too much in that apartment. But you see my point, the proper emancipatory logic shouldn't even move at this level. Here, I even marginally, for the first time, agree with Jürgen Habermas, who in a short text in the time, said almost the same thing, he said, He's deeply tired of this sentimentalization. Do we still have a human heart and so on? No, it's simply civic duty. People are dying, escaping war. There is nothing to debate there. So you see, that's why I wonder if you would agree. I think we should focus at least when we talk about love on this singular radical experience and avoid this stupid mixture of, you know, in communism, entire life will be sex. Well, if this is communism, I wouldn't like to be, you know. Thank you very much. Thank you for tolerating this idiot. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I did once in Italy, sorry, in Italian to confuse the translator, and it was wonderful. I spoke in English, the translator translated it into Italian. Then to confuse him, because I know it a little bit, I made a sentence in Italian, and nonsensically he translated it into Italian. Uh, the nice lady who is lady who are translating, I know what you will do, let's make a wager immediately after this talk. You will buy a voodoo doll of me, then all the evening you will be putting needles into it, no? And I agree with you because I must be nightmare. <laughs> Talking too fast and so on, but you know what will be your ethical act? Once it happened to me, special. I 
had a strange experience that, you know, I talked for five minutes and the translation was like 10 seconds, you know. <laughs> then I asked my friend, how was the Okay, I was asked a difficult question and uh, I was improvising an answer. And the translation was, Professor Vijay really doesn't know what to say and he's just laughing around. <laughs> Bence. Ee, şey, bunun temelini yabancılaşmamak. İnsan çünkü kendisi değil. 
tanımlanmış bir şey. Dolayısıyla kendisi olabildiğiniz için aşkınlaşması lazım. Onu nesneleştiren her şeyden aşkınlaşması lazım. E, aşk bunun için iyi bir e, araç, süreç. E, bu konuda fikiriz. E, peki yabancılaşma ortadan kalktığında ne olacak? E, ya da zamiyetinin eleştirdiği o toplum ortadan kalktığında, yani kurulan bir şey ortadan kalktığında, lineer bir sürecin tarihin olmadığı bir zamanda ne olacak? E, buna komünizm demiyorum. Ya da başka bir şey. E, ne olacak? Yani o zaman e, aşksızlaşacak mıyız? E, yani bu, e, bu, bu, bu soruyu ben dünkü konuşmalarda ve sizin aslında konuşmalarınızda da çok çıkaramadım bu sonucu. E, açıkçası merak ediyorum. Yani yabancılaşmanın olmadığı bir ortamda ne olacak? Teşekkür ederim. Evet. Wonderful question. My only problem is that it's a half an hour question. You know, to answer it properly, I think both answer it right to be as brief as possible. Uh, first, about contract. I read with some leftist critics in the United States of this contract we signed and so on. That that's the iron. If you look at radical critics of uh, bourgeois oppression sentimentality, then you all of a sudden can discover that the secret model of this politically correct, where no one is harassed, sex is a legal contract. You know, we negotiate everything, we make it clear. So there, there is a certain, I claim that, that politically correct, obsession is one aspect of this uh, legal ideology penetrating our daily life. What you said about Zabiati, I think that his vision there is a little bit uh, simplified. We should look into the ideology that surrounds it, which is, I think, very Fascinating. A greater representative for me is André Platon. It's what one cannot but call the uh, communist uh, gnosticism. The idea was that the main task of the October Revolution should be, and they meant it quite literal, to produce a new man through genetic changes and so on. And a man who is clearly described as beyond sexual. As they, this is the metaphor, beautiful one they use. In the same way that if you look at a steam machine and it gets too hot, you don't feel the heat. You just look it on some side of the measuring apparatus. That we should learn to relate in the same way to our bodies. You don't feel pain in an abstract way. You just register and. The biggest representative of this was Platon, who you can feel how in his big novels sex is mostly the degrading experience. And it's an extremely interesting topic at how in his later so-called Stalinist works, sex returns in a more positive mood as a mode of authentic existence. I mean things are much more complex uh, there. But now the really interesting aspect of what you said. No problem for me. I am for alienation. I am sick and tired of this bourgeois ideology that 
you know, we don't need alienation, everything should be self-organized, directly transparent, and so on and so on. Alienation, even at the symbolic level, alienation in the sense of, we use cliches, there is a certain externality of language. My hero here is American producer Samuel Goldwyn. There is a legendary story, because he produced many gold incense. Nonsenses, but we now know he planned them well. He wasn't an idiot. He got a report from some newspapers attacked films produced by him that they used too many old pieces. So he immediately wrote a memo to his scenario department. We need more new original pieces. And he was absolutely right. The great historical change is not I'm just an exception, I don't follow cliches. No, the great change is precisely to invent new cliches. With all this minimal, I mean, you know, cliche means precisely you don't get to feel too creatively. You, we absolutely need this as a background. Even at a different level. That's a deep paradox. Even Marx lately suspected it that uh, one thing is alienation the way Marx describes it, you know, capital, all that. Another thing is, maybe you shouldn't call it alienation, a certain externalization in the big other symbolic system and so on, which is much more primordial. What we should only insist is that, no, we are not the masters. There is an hour, but the point is that this other is also not the master. So uh, what I'm claiming is that uh, we should maybe problematize this topic of simply condemning alienation. We should be much more precise here. I have no, I have no problems with that. Look, even the same problem that you described, it works with even Jokes, you need a background for jokes. For example, in Paris, 35 years ago, I participated in a seminar by Jacqueline Miller. It was when Jacqueline Miller was still, at least pretended to be normal politically. It wasn't like now when he is uh, getting quite crazy, he's supporting Sarkozy and so on. But what happened is that I wanted to make a joke against Proverbs, which are another form of cliches, and I use uh, the, the, uh, to give an example of a conformist proverb, which justifies anything. In Slovenia, maybe you have it also. If you do something and you risk too much and you fail, there will always be a wise guy who will tell you our Slovene vulgar proverb is uh, you cannot urinate against the wind. Like, don't risk too much, no? But I made a mistake, because the Slovene verb for urinate sounds very close to French word for to defecate, cheat. So what I said was, you cannot cheat against the wind. On ne peut pas chier contre le vent. And Miller gave a wonderful answer. He just looked coldly at me and said, 
Well, to me, but you really should But you see what I mean? We can do this only against the background of all these proverbs we says, which is why I claim true creativity is to create new wishes. You see, there is an erotic dimension in it. It's kind of erection, short question, long answer. Hello, I'm sorry, um, I have to speak in English because um, I can't speak Turkish. Um, now I've come all the way from Iran to um, you know, take part in this exhibition and I'm trying this conference. Um, here's my question, Mr. Judic. Um, uh, my question is about, you know, um, the Hegelian approach in the real world. And, and particularly, I, I just want to, you know, stress on negativity. Yeah. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that, you know, um, Walter Benjamin has got, you know, a very important term, which is, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the distinct power, you know, in his uh, famous uh, article called uh, The Critique of Violence. Um, this, you know, this also speaks about the specific history of violence, I think. Do you mean violence or power? Um, the statement power. Oh, okay, okay, everyone. Yes, the statement of power, which yeah. is mentioned in an article by Walter Benjamin. Yes, critical violence, yes, yes, yes. yes. yes. Incidentally, if you will come to Ramallah in early December, we have a big conference on uh, on, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I can't My intervention there will be on this venue. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I, I was talking to Yudi about you know the same thing, but unfortunately I can't take part in that you know conference because I'm from Iran and it's Israel over there. So if I get there, I will be harmed in my own country. Even so if anyway, you enter from uh, from Jordan, from Algeria, yeah. it doesn't work. No. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to find a way out. Anyway. Um, what I'm trying to say is that you know, uh, I'm trying to focus on the, uh, you know, the negative approach or, uh, or your Hegelian approach. You know, according to Benjamin, the constituent power and the constitutive power, I mean constituent and constituted power, yeah, yeah. it's a kind of vicious circle that goes on. The constituent power is the kind of power that you know, it motivates the revolution. And then when the revolution, um, you know, uh, begins its downfall and, and, and the power is, is going to be, you know, exclusively usurped by, you know, uh, the, the new ruling class, then there will be the constitutive power. So, um, the way out, I mean, uh, Benjamin finds a way out and that is, you know, the constituent power and, uh, uh, uh, you know, uh, Georgia Agamemnon tries to, you know, delineate the issue. Anyway, what I'm trying to, you know, focus here is that um, if, if we recall the famous watchword of, um, in, in, you know, uh, the French Revolution, I mean, 1789, um, the three, um, you know, famous elements, um, you know, um, equality, freedom, and brotherhood. I guess, you know, in, in, in the um, European, I mean, generally talking in, in, in you know, the left tradition, uh, the, the first two, um, they have been, you know, very much emphasized and stressed. I mean, freedom and equality. Um, unfortunately, we've got nothing about, you know, brotherhood. So, you were talking about love. And, and you know, one thing which, which uh, is very much dominant to love is actually the sexual difference. 
you know. Um, brotherhood, in, in my opinion, is a kind of, you know, um, an extensive concept which can, you know, uh, encompass um, um, not only the sexual difference, but, but, but also it's a kind of way, um, you know, beyond sexual difference. So, um, you know, it's, it's my question uh, in, in the beginning about the, about the constituent power and, and um, you know, how we can, um, you know, uh, skip negativity because, you know, the constituent and the constituent power are kind of, you know, um, connected with the negativity somehow. And plus, um, the, the political uh, kind of solution which turns out to be, um, you know, this uh, brotherhood. I mean, emphasizing and stressing on brotherhood. Thank you so much. Uh, this is again a very good question, but a very difficult one, because what I would like to avoid here is the idea good constituent power revolutionary versus bad constituted power. As if oh, that dynamic matters. No, for me, the two, for me, again, referring to Alain, uh, people who celebrate his notion of event politics often forget the, for me, absolutely crucial point, which is event, even up to a point, becomes retroactively an event. Event is measured by its consequences. So if there is a thing, Alain doesn't mean. It's this, like, Tahrir Square, Chitatma Square. We had a big event, we all cried, so wonderful and so on, and then things return to normal. No, the truly difficult change is to change that normality. How will life change after a revolutionary or whatever uprising? What will be so? I don't want to depreciate this second moment as it's just the inertia, it doesn't matter. No, it matters absolutely. You know, the morning after, what remains. Otherwise, as I like to say cynically, it's like, you know, I can imagine it in Egypt or in Greece, maybe not. You know, like 10 years from now, friends will meet. You know, in a cafeteria, my God, what is it nice, we can all together there. And then a phone will ring and one will say, oh sorry, I have to run back to my bank or whatever, you know. Like, as you know, in France, it's almost part of an identity of conservative politicians. Sarkozy and so on to say, but of course, in 68, I was on the barricades with the people. That's why I share. Alain's vision that I also like, like him, politically at least, Victor Hugo. Because his path is exactly the opposite path. He began young as a royalist conservative and moved more and more to the left. At the end, after 1870, he fought to, uh, to bring back from exile the communards who were exiled and so on. So that's my uh, first point. Second point, I think one shouldn't mystify in a post-modern way Benjamin. For example, his notion of divine violence. I am shocked at how since Benjamin is now elevated into a superstar, you don't criticize him, they try to get rid, you know, the same is with Frank Spamon. He said some things which are problematic for our sentimentality. So they try to prove that what Benjamin means with divine violence is just some 
purely inner change, nobody's really hurt, no blood or whatever. No, uh, my friend who is co-organizing that conference in Ramallah, Sami Khabib, showed me a wonderful memoir of a friend of Badiou, where he reports talking to, sorry, of Badiou, I said, of Benjamin, who uh, said in 35, he asked Benjamin, what does he think with divine violence? And Benjamin says, it means that in revolution, some people have to be slaughtered like boxes. So, no, he was very, and now my solution. I don't think we should celebrate divine violence as something great. These are horrible moments. For example, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, maybe Alain knows much better here. I would say that the famous outburst in France, France, okay, so when is it, 35, 6 years, when in the suburb of Paris, cars were burning, this is, because you know, Benjamin says precisely, divine violence is violence, it's an instrument, without, a means without God. So it's not programmatic, it's just, as Benjamin says, you just explode, you manifest your rage without any instrumentality. So I think that we shouldn't celebrate divine violence. Oh, it's divine. No, it's something horrible. But it's more an indication of a desperate social situation where, for example, in France, you have a whole generation of people who are not able to minimally politicize their predicament not even in a fundamentalist Islamic way, all they can do is just explode. This is for me divine violence today. And it's nothing noble. I mean, if I were to be there, I would run away like hell, which is pretty deep. But nonetheless, it means <coughs> we have no right to simply condemn it. It is a display of a certain fundamental uh, uh, deadlock. Although, on the other hand, you know, with Benjamin, uh, it's like Spinoza for me. I don't know what is here, but under the influence of Deleuze and others, there is a certain divinization of Spinoza, you know. Spinoza is the untouchable. You cannot criticize him. Maybe we should do a little bit of this also to Benjamin. Not to have this extreme respect, you know. Whatever he said, it must be right. So you are desperately looking for different uh, readings uh, and so on and so on. Although I, get, I cannot ever resist vulgar conclusions, I have one idea. Why don't you organize a colloquium? The key problems of Marxism in 20th century. And what one topic will be Benjamin's affair to Asia Laxis, the beautiful one, the second, Lenin and uh, Ines Alarban, the third topic, here is your topic across the island, Trotsky and Frida Kahlo and so on. I'm sure you will get enough people for that. Sorry, but you see the direction where I'm sitting. Brotherhood. Sorry? Brotherhood. Brotherhood. My gosh, I'm tempted to say here that I would really, I don't have, I know there is a feminist criticism like my brotherhood, my more sisterhood and so on, and I am uneasy with that criticism, but Maybe Alain should answer this one later. You know? So what I would do, I used this joke in 
by Bruxelles. In old Yugoslavia, we have a big CV piece. And you got one figure which was called the tweet ball. And you could use it once, not to answer the question. Okay, I use for that brotherhood Greece boy. <laughs> because I must admit, I didn't think about it. İki tane kısa soru Gracias. 
functions is we are real friends, this proof. So, uh, you know, what I don't like in political correctness, first, is this uh, attempt to... What do I mean by this? Okay, I will give you another example which I think is published, so that's good, at least I know the meaning. Ahmadinejad visited New York some years ago, and he was invited to a round table, no, something he made at Columbia University. And there a scandal happened. To avoid a misunderstanding, no friendship towards Ahmadinejad. I was shocked and I wrote some protest letters when he, uh, he cheated that battle against the Saudi Republic. You know what happened there? French told me, French to understand the Arabians, that uh, when somebody from the public asked him what about homosexuality in the Arabians, uh, the official translation of his reply was we don't have this problem because we don't have homosexuals. And of course, everyone laughed there. No, I was told he said something much more refined. If I explained his answer, so I was told. I'm not going to He said, we deal with it in a way which is opposed from yours. People discreetly do it, we don't talk publicly about it. And of course, this is the standard half-oppressive attitude, but he pointed out something that precisely, I think, is endangered with political correctness. In our daily lives, it's absolutely crucial to have this refined distance. You don't speak publicly about everything that you say and so on, but in political correctness, there is this tendency to regulate all the details. You know, like, you can even, I think, that in some colleges, some politically correct guidelines for sex, where they said, you know, how you open the girl's button. First, you should have asked her, can I open your button? Yes. Can I open the next one? Yes. And so on and so on. Again, it may work in a sexually, but what I'm saying is that, uh, again, for, uh, the second problem I have, and then stop that, with political correctness, is this focus on harassment. The other person is perceived as a potential danger. And I claim that, you know, this fear of, I, it happened to me with my vulgarity, you can accept. I was accused of, I looked once a lady a little bit too long into her eyes, oh, visual rate. I used a dirty joke, oh, verbal rate. No? I mean, uh, I claim there is something absolutely fake, false, in this hypersensitivity. It's the same problem as with those trigger warnings. Basically, the true enemy of political correctness is the name. The neighbor is the other being... Uh, you don't agree with me. The, uh, big time. Sorry? I don't agree with you big time. There is a huge difference between political correct and consents for sex. They are not in the same side. Because like with the coffee, let's speak about the coffee. Yeah. So the coffee, that's an earring the can, earring the can, anything, come for a coffee, it's mean let's have sex. Yeah. She read Sue and she said, come for a coffee, it's mean let's speak about my language, my feminine language. 
So the way I agree with you about politically yeah. correct is totally different issue of the fight for consent. The fight for consent for sex is the language of thousands of women that have been raped by men to take masterhood of the language. They create a new eroticism by giving a different meaning for the coffee. It's not either coffee is a coffee or coffee is really sex, so let's give the, the Lacan. The minute you start to speak of Lacan, you really killed him because we understand it. Now we know coffee is sex. So now when no. you said coffee, I mean coffee. But I, I'm not oh. saying coffee is but always what sex. What I try to say that like, divine violence, the fact that in this, this revolution of the women <laughs> to take masterhood on the language, some white men get castrated in the gray area, it's not such a big deal. It's like uh, like Robespierre killed some innocent people. But the, but the issue is to create a new language, a new family language, that the man cannot even give the meaning to her language. So coffee can mean many other things. And that's very important. And so just to be one of the things, we all make jokes of the, you know, of the, the ridiculous of political correct or the perversion where they get it in Columbia University. But the issue is that the big fight of women changing the language of the master of the man, it's a huge revolution. It is almost an event. And the fact that some people take it to a ridiculous place doesn't mean that we shouldn't speak about this position of protecting the women from thousands okay. of people. Now we have a big difference. Yeah. Because first... And I agree with you about political court. Yeah. First, about this uh, feminine language and so on and so on. I radically disagree with this. This is for me a linguistic apartheid. It's total dead end for feminism to claim we women have to have our own language or whatever. And what you said about coffee, but my point was not whenever I say coffee, remember that in that scene from a woman from the film, the woman says, come for a coffee. The man doesn't read it in a sexual way. The man reads it literally. He says, sorry, I don't drink coffee. And it's she herself who sexualizes it. So it's not what you imputed to poor even McGregor, like the poor it's woman. the background that every man do sexualize it. It's become a joke by the fact that he take it concrete. What you said is exactly true what I said on the okay, background. But that every time men take yes. it sexually, but this has become a joke. The way to fight it, it's not through this bullshit of different languages and so on and so on, but to ironically make fun of this very presupposition. That's why I like Bosnians, for example, in ex-Yugoslavia. They don't fight racism by creating another language. They fight racism by exploiting to the end all racist cliches and uh, in, with great pleasure assuming. I agree with you uh, about this. The issue that saying consent, it's not anymore language, it's a speech act. Uh, when I say I agree, it means I have in sex. I don't think it means I don't have sex. It's not a joke. It's a speech act. You cannot do it like that. Let us go on this. You can be content to say, but you presuppose too much. Let's have dinner. Okay, after. You I think that first, even saying yes doesn't guarantee anything. There are so many, like, I can well imagine a woman saying yes under terror, which may be even worse terror. And I think there are situations where the woman doesn't say yes and 
sorry to say this, she means yes. I mean, this is simply the subtlety of the situation. You cannot resolve it through this abstract rules and to avoid the misunderstanding. If anything, and even more sensitive, more sensitive in the sense that uh, what worries me is that even if you obey all politically correct rules and so on, there can still be a terrible pressure and so on. Can I just very briefly uh, uh, answer briefly uh, the, uh, sorry, what was uh, the divine violence the other And yet, immortality. The immortality, love, and so on. Immortality, yes, but in but you sense, not in the... And it all depends on what exactly do you mean if we were immortals. I hope I understand you correctly by saying, what's the problem? We are immortals in some dimension of our being. Immortality doesn't mean uh, I will biologically never die. Immortality means there is, uh, as you call it, event dimension in our being which is properly, and you can be a materialist for it, metaphysical, in the sense of, uh, of uh, in the sense of uh, beyond this cycle of uh, uh, life, death, and so on, whatever ordinary. So I would say, uh, I would say that, uh, that yes, without immortality, there is no authentic love. But this mortality has nothing to do with vulgar biological immortality. If anything, to imagine vulgar biological immortality is something extremely brutal and vulgar. Where do you find immortality in popular culture? Living dead, Stephen King, and so on and so on. That's absolutely not. This is, you know, that's the only way I would supplement a little bit an end then. Of course, living dead don't exist. But there is a certain imaginary of immortality which is precisely a bad obscene immortality. Is it good in